Hello and welcome to the F-Rated podcast. I'm Holly Tarquini. I'm the founder of the F-Rating. And I'm broadcaster and journalist Anu Anand. And this is episode five of our podcast. The F-Rating, in case you don't know, is a feminist film rating awarded to all films written and or directed by women. And if it also stars women, then it's triple F-Rated. If you'd like to see a list of nearly 26,000 F-rated films, just put F-rated as a keyword into IMDb. And Holly, today we are speaking to someone, of course, who really embodies the F-rating. We're talking to screenwriter Gabby Chappie. Now, Gabby is an experienced TV writer. She's written extensively for long-running series like Family Affairs, Doctors, EastEnders, Casualty, Survivors, lots of other series as well. And her first feature film, Their Finest, came out in 2017. It was previewed at Film Bath Festival, as was her second film, Misbehaviour, which came out in 2020, one week before lockdown. Oh my gosh, Gabby, welcome. Hi, hi. Hi, Gabby. I'm so chuffed to have you on, not least because both your films are triple F rated. And- oh, excellent. <laughs> And have a good, strong feminist bent to them. So very lovely to have you here. And and Gabby, I watched Misbehaviour yesterday. We'll be talking about the film, but I mean, really, not just a feminist film, but so intersectional, so refreshingly intersectional. So I'm, I'm not surprised at all it got such a, a high F rating. Gabby, let's start with questions from students at Screenology in Bristol. We also talked to kids who are part of the group Into Film, and we wanted to find out what they wanted to ask you in preparation uh, for this conversation. And of course, the number one question, because, you know, of course, they're at this point in their lives, is how did you get into your profession? Because I think I'm right in saying you studied archaeology? I studied archaeology and then changed to English, but it's not a very clear path. So it's a slightly how long have you got when I talk about how I got into what I'm doing. I don't think when I was young, it ever occurred to me that you could be a writer of television. I watched a lot of TV and a lot of films on TV. And I think I always thought of the actors were just embodying the whole thing for me. So when I thought about how attracted I was to telly and film. I thought I wanted to be an actor, but I now think that's just because that's the visible bit. And I identified very strongly with the characters I saw as well. So I now I get irritated that people think the actors are making it up as they go along. But at the time, when I was younger, that's sort of how I received TV and film. I did a lot of acting. I did a lot of theatre at university. I was really taken up with that. And when I left, I was part of a women's theatre company called Trouble and Strife. We wrote our own plays because there weren't any plays that we wanted to perform. Then I tried to write a novel, which again, I felt very passionately about, but astoundingly, having read so much over the years, because I read a lot as well as watched a lot of telly, I just couldn't do it. I just didn't know how the engineering of a novel worked. I would consumed them in huge quantities, but I couldn't reproduce that. But interestingly, when I came to, I got a break, a friend of mine was working for Family Affairs, which was a now defunct soap on Channel 5, where they gave very new writers a break, probably because they paid them so little. (laughs) But um, the first time I tried to write telly, I realised that actually I could reproduce that. I did understand the engineering. I really understood the grammar. So I still don't know why all the telly and film I watched soaked into me 
and became something I understood. I got the rhythms and I got it, whereas novels just didn't, couldn't do it. When I started doing it, I do remember this sort of rush of excitement of thinking, I can do this. I really want to do this. I really want to do this. And I was pregnant with my first child, which is mostly when people are starting to ease off their careers. And I just thought, I've just found this thing and it makes sense of all the other things I've done, all the other things I've tried to write, all the interest in theatre, all of that, all of that suddenly coming together in this one thing. And here I am, like eight months pregnant. Gabby, I know there's a, there's already a lot there, but I know that Holly and I really want to hear more, don't we, about Trouble and Strife, the feminist theatre company. How, how did you get into that and what, what was that like? Oh, it's gosh, it's so long ago now. Well, I got into it, we were students in a university which produced lots and lots of theatre. I I went to Cambridge and there was a lot of money available to students, societies of all sorts. So loads of theatre was being produced. Very little of it felt like it was about women or, you know, I played, usually played boy parts when when I was cast. I was often cast as just sort of, yeah. And what, what kinds of stories? What, what did, did you feel was missing? Well, we did a lot, there was a lot of classical work, there was a lot of Shakespeare. There just wasn't work where either women got the chance to act as women, although this, those chances were few and far between, or they just weren't about what was happening then, you know, didn't, or weren't addressing what it felt like to be who we were, which was in our late teens and early 20s, in the mid 80s. Um, and I left and did carried on doing theatre. I was doing fringe theatre because uh, I was a little bit older than the other women in the group. And then um, Abigail Morris, who's the director who went on to work in the Soho Theatre, said, "We're going to we, we want to take it professional. Do you want to do you want to join us?" So I did. I was with a company. We wrote two plays. They wrote another one afterwards. They were varied, but they were all about women and aspects of being female that we felt wasn't really being tackled at the time. So we did, the first play was called Now and at the Hour of Our Death, and it was about the no-wash protest in Armagh prison. At the same time as the men were on hunger strike, there was a women's protest, which was sort of forgotten because of uh, the attention was focused on the men. We, then we did a play called Next to You I Lie about pornography, which in fact had a revival of two or three years ago. And I was surprised at how, surprised, pleased, but also very depressed at how relevant it still felt. And then when I left, they did a play about mother and baby homes. So I felt that re-watching Misbehaviour and Their Finest, I felt that they were both incredibly relevant. One set in the 40s, one set in the 70s. Still so much of the battle to come but there were two things I wanted to pick up on the first is one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast is because I think especially for young people what you said about you can only see the actors or the director so they're the kind of roles in film that you know about and so often you find when you talk to young people that want to work in film that's what they focus on because that's what they can see and we want to unveil the myriad of positions that there are in film and how different they all are and the skills that are different. And the other thing was that you talked about how you intuitively knew how to write for television and film. And I'm really, really interested in that because every time I speak to any screenwriters, they tell me that writing, especially for film, is incredibly technical, that you kind of, you have to get it 
right so that it makes simple sense. Yeah, I'm not saying I was I'm not saying I was great at it first off. I think what I'm trying to say is I just understood the language that was being spoken. I understood when I was there were too many words on the page. I understood that a scene felt too long. It was more like a sense of I'm a really bad dancer, but it was more like a sense of rhythm. I understood something needs to change now, something needs to happen now, too many words. Um, I need to be outside now that I've been inside. So it was more to do with understanding how those rhythms worked and it felt intuitive rather than learned. Everything else has been learned since then. Um, but at least I understood what I was learning. So it's like something that kind of made sense to me intrinsically, so you can learn it. Whereas I did a disastrous physics A-level. I never, I, I never understood physics. I don't know what I was thinking. But I could never learn it because I just didn't get any of the principles. It's just not how I see the world. So everything was like learning in a foreign language. Whereas when I got to TV and film, I felt like, no, this, I understand this. I understand this. I just need to get better at it. So, Gabby, um, you talked about how you ended up writing this script for Family Affairs, this ITV uh, series. H how did that actually come about? Because in 1997, you moved from London to Leeds, which is a bit, bit of a, uh, a bit of a reverse of what most people do. How did the actual op opportunity to write a TV script come about? Well, so somebody, this is a classic story, is somebody, a friend got me the break. So somebody I knew because we'd worked together in theatre, so... She got a job on Family Affairs as she was writing scripts for Family Affairs. They were looking for writers and she said, oh, you should, I, I know somebody who I think would be good, but she hasn't got a script to send you because everybody always wants a calling card because she's been writing with a women's theatre group and they, they write by consensus. So there's not only just writing together, there's five of them in a room and they, they write by consensus, which basically meant whoever had the energy to argue longest on that day carried the moment but it was a really interesting way to work at the time we thought politically we should write like that anyway so you see don't don't she's not got nothing to show you just give her a chance and they did so I was really really lucky I know that people listening are going to be going oh no it's a friend that's just I don't want to hear that there are other ways of doing it I don't know then how else I would have done it but now I think there are more official openings there are more courses you can be doing. There are more chances. So, Yeah, I think that's true. And often I'm talking to people about, so from a programming perspective, because I run a film festival, we're often talking about who programs the films. So who selects the films that we watch at film festivals in independent cinemas? And are all those people that are choosing the films of one specific type, which tends to be male, pale and stale? And if they are, how do we shift that? And there's lots and lots and lots of programmes for young programmers to get into the industry, but then it doesn't really follow through after that. And I think that's probably similar in screenwriting, that there are probably lots of courses and programmes for younger people to do, but whether that has started and is properly then feeding into the system without those contacts... Um, I don't know. I think it's 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 really, I think it's really fraught how you how you make those things how you make those opportunities stick. Yeah, and and also we've been talking a lot about um, feeling that you have the privilege to do it. not not the privilege to do it, but the kind of the right to do it. Yeah, I, I went to Cambridge, which makes me very lucky and very privileged. 
but and it did give me a huge boost but part of that was the confidence because I got there from a state school and I didn't have imposter syndrome actually I got there and thought oh my god if my sixth form had gone to the schools that these people had gone to we'd all be here so in fact although there were some really amazingly clever people there there were also a lot of people there that I just thought were there because of the kind of education they'd had and actually that's what gave me the confidence is I thought, no, not only can I compete, most of my school could, or half my school could have done if they'd wanted to, if they'd been given the same break. So I went from being somebody who came from a place where I consumed culture to going to university with people whose parents maybe worked for the BBC or did so, who, from people who made culture. And I suddenly realised that was actually possible there are other things that have the same effect i think is that you need to be given the opportunity to think oh no i can make i can make this and it can happen in lots of different ways and for me it was the university i went to and the, the sort of doors that opened for me and the way it changed the way i saw how things were working as well so Gabby, let me bring in uh, some of the questions that we've had from the students. And, and obviously you transitioned from TV into film. And let's talk about your first film. Um, it's their finest. And for those who haven't seen it, um, Katrin Cole is the main character. She's played by actress Gemma Arterton. And she joins the Ministry of Information to write, I love this word, slop. And this is the this is the women's dialogue for these propaganda films. And then she ends up working on a feature with a character played by Bill Nighy. Can you talk us through a little bit, first of all, of how you adapted the book that was written by Lissa Evans? How was that approach different, perhaps, to writing a screenplay from scratch? So Their Finest Hour and a Half, which is Lissa's book, the main process I think I went through was actually deciding what to leave out because it's a very rich multi-layered multi-stranded book and um, what happened through subsequent drafts was you, you're finding the shape of the feature film within that you have to you have to re-engineer I always think that adaptation is an act of re-engineering or trans it's more like translation you're translating it from one genre to another genre the thing that adaptation gives you is that you have source material to which you have a, a an emotional response otherwise you wouldn't be doing it so this that gives you energy and in fact what you end up doing is trying to keep the spirit of what you loved about it what you loved about reading that book while re-engineering it restructuring it making it into something different it's as you know making a novel into a film is a bit like making a novel into a poem. It's a very, very different genre. And you do have to translate an awful lot of things to try and... But what you're generally trying to do is preserve the spirit. OK, so let me, let me just put to you a couple of specific questions. So this is a question from Mia, and she asks, what is your daily creative practice? Oh, Mia, that is such a brilliant question. And I tell you what, all writers are absolutely obsessed with other writers' creative daily practice. What you do, that's what we ask each other when we meet. So I'm quite disciplined. I get to my desk and I try not to leave it. I work, it just sort of depends on the kind of work I'm doing. When I'm writing, actually writing a script, I just sit at my desk and I keep 
keep going and try and get through the pages because it's just a matter of how many hours you put in. So I'm disciplined and I can do that. But the thing that I find hardest to manage is my own state of mind. So it's almost like a, men it's a mental health issue. You're spending loads of time on your own doing work which is quite technical, but living in a completely imaginary world that only you inhabit, unless it's actually being made, in which case that gets slightly easier. And when it, my work is going well and what I'm writing feels alive, I am really, really happy. When it's going wrong and it just feels like something that has no reality, it has no life to it, it just feels dead, I'm really miserable. So creatively, I get to my desk, I sit here. Sometimes I have a swim first when the swimming pools are open or when it's warm enough to swim outside. And I spend a lot of time trying to manage my state of, yeah, my state of mind. But there is nothing, I know this to be true, the only thing that does it is putting in the time. So I know, and I know sometimes I put in the time, nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens, and suddenly it all comes together. But it never all comes together if I haven't put in the hours first. So that leads perfectly onto a question that came from Maisie. And Maisie asks, how can someone get over bad writer's block, especially in COVID or lockdown times? That's a really, it's also a really good question, Maisie. Okay, there's two things. It's, it's hard to have writer's block when somebody's paying you to deliver work. It's possible, but it's harder. There's a sort of spur in that that actually can get you through most things. However, when I've tried to write something just for myself, I hit writer's block quite badly and it's, it always surprises me that I can't, it, it doesn't seem to be a transportable skill that I take from career to personal writing I want to do that nobody's paying me for and it's just experimental. And what I try and do is break it down into really tiny things, give myself little tiny tasks. So to get over writer's block, somebody once told me you should never polish at the end of the day, you should always leave what, you're, what you've written unfinished so that you've got something to get purchase on. And it used to be my, I used to like leaving everything tidy. I'm quite a tidy person, tidy my desk, tidy my paragraph. But actually, if you leave it, if you leave the work a mess, then you've got something to respond to the next day. And you think, oh, that's really bad. And before you know it, you're making it better. So that's one thing. But I would, when it's happened to me, I've set myself really tiny little tasks like describing what I see outside the window or um, write for five minutes about what I'm thinking and no more than five minutes so I'm not overwhelmed by the size of what I'm trying to do. I know that there are lots of writers' exercises as well that you can get that do that and probably much more interestingly than the ones I've just said. But I think for me, when there's a block, it's the block is often the size of what I wish I could do or the, the hugeness of what I wish I could say. And so the best thing is just do something small. So that would be my, that's my way out of it when it happens to me. That's such good advice. That sounds so useful. Yeah. Leave the mess for the next morning when you have the energy. This is a question from Rianne. And she says, how much power does a screenwriter have after they write the script? So through production, post-production, distribution, or is it just totally out of your hands at that stage? Are we talking about feature films here? Yes. I think it really depends on the circumstance of the film. So I've only had the experience of being involved in two feature films. And with both of them, I felt very consulted by the director. Both directors were women. 
and and misbehavior was co-written with Rebecca Frame so I didn't write that on my own but any power I've had in that has been given to me out of courtesy but actually no I don't I don't think you have any real power unless you're also an executive producer um I've spoken to writers who've had the experience of feeling completely pushed off their own their own work and so it can happen and there's no guarantee there's no guarantee it won't and film feature film as it stands now is a director's medium so it's a difficult one to protect yourself against I think so can you tell us a bit more about those? Because you've worked with two fantastic directors. I mean, I've only worked on two feature films, but worked with the two directors that you've worked with. Tell us about them. So Lona Scherfig, who directed Their Finest, and Philippa Lothorpe, who directed Misbehaviour. They're very different. But what is interesting about them is that, I mean, they're different. They're very different people, but they both run very calm film sets. And they're both very, very respectful of writers. They're both very, very meticulous as well. You'd get, if it wasn't working, you'd get notes and notes and notes and notes until it was working. But I enjoy that process of a director saying, I need this, I need this, I need this. No, I need more of that, I need more of that. Not being prescriptive about how you will achieve that, but just saying, no, no, I need more, I need more. Can it be funnier is obviously my least favourite note. It's most writers' least favourite. Could this be funnier? You think, well, if it could, it would be. But in fact... They're not saying, we need a joke here, and I think this is the joke. They're saying, we need some lightness here. We need this to sing a bit at this moment. I love the humour in both films because it's it doesn't get at anyone. Neither of them are kind of attacking or making fun humour, are they? They're both inclusive humour. Oh, that's really good to hear. I, I think people are really funny. I think if you listen to people on the street at any length of time just in a bus stop, or, you know, when we were allowed to be in bus stops, but people are really funny. The average person, average conversations make you laugh. And I just think that's, I think that's, you know, why wouldn't you reflect that? Well, Gabby, let's bring in your second film, um, which I really thoroughly enjoyed. I mean, I, I was, yeah, I was kind of blown away just because of the the breadth of what you were trying to portray the stories that all kind of intersect misbehavior is a film set in the year 1970 and it's the miss world beauty pageant it's about to be hosted in london and a group of feminists um decide to disrupt it and and it's got this wonderful cast you've got Kira knightley playing the main character she's quite intellectual middle class she's studying history she's got a tv she's divorced you know but her co-protesters are sort of living in a commune you know sort of like your your theater group sharing everything sharing the money sharing the work uh, and then you've got this incredibly international palette of women these contestants you know who have their own burdens that they're they're dealing with, whether it's race, South Africa, apartheid, uh, opportunity. Uh, and then you've got the men as well, including Bob Hope, who is, you know, coming to host this big event. So how, first of all, did you manage all of that in a script? I mean, that is an awful lot to get in. That's down to Rebecca Frame. She started it and she managed to marshal. I mean, where do you, when you're adapting life, even though it's an event but it is life where do you start where do you stop what do you what do you include what don't you so the extraordinary thing that I think she did was manage to find a shape that allowed all the things you described 
to exist. So focusing on the competition, but making sure that those extraordinary streams that were feeding into it, it gave it a shape. Life is chaos, which is why we have stories, because stories make chaos somehow meaningful and make it into patterns. Stories aren't really naturally occurring. They need to be shaped. And it's really hard to shape life into a story without making it feel too neat, too tidy, you know, like you're shoehorning stuff in. It's a really difficult job. And I think she did it, you know, amazingly. That was her, not me. Okay. This question from Mia, again, is really relevant to the characters in your film. Uh, How do you manage to round out the characters? How do you make them real without, you know, trying so hard that they effectively become artificial? Well, Philippa Lothorpe, who directed it, had has a very, um, she's got a kind of mantra, which she keeps keep saying to me, Gabby, the truth is our friend, the truth is our friend. So she also directed Three Girls, which um, she won a BAFTA for, about the child abuse grooming scandal. And that was based on the experiences of real women and the incredibly traumatic experiences, well, girls, children, real, of real people. And so her view on how you use reality and how that becomes story is you know you you shape it as much as you have to to make it hold together as a story that you can tell and sometimes you have to leave things out and sometimes you have to introduce things so that people understand what's happening but then you mine as much of the reality from people what people have said to you what people have told you as you possibly can it's like a sort of process where you flick between you engineer the structure and then you clothe it in the flesh of truth you know little bits of truth that people have told you and then you have to re-engineer it and then you clothe it some more in the details of their lives that people have have told you so there's something in the soundscape just to flick back to the other film in um their finest where one of the things that when you're reading testaments from the second world war one of the things that i hadn't heard before was people saying all you can hear is the sound of broken glass being swept up every day all the time during the blitz that was the sound of the blitz to them wasn't the sirens wasn't the bombs it was the broken glass being swept up on the pavements and that was in the that was fed into the soundscape of that film so it's all that those little bits of truth so let me ask you another one gabby uh this question is from dominique How do you find the topics that you are best suited to writing? I don't know if you do this. Do you filter? But she wants to know, how do you find the stuff that you think you are best uh, placed to tell? That's a very good question. I do filter now. When I started, I would have been grateful for any job. And I found that if I put enough effort in, I came to love and care about anything I wrote, even if it's not something that would have been my taste. Now, I wouldn't write something I wouldn't myself watch because that you just end up being cynical because if it's not your taste, you don't understand why people love it. So it will, it will just be a cynical exercise. I do get lots of stuff sent to me and I read it and think, yeah, yeah, I can see that as a film or I can see that as telly, but it doesn't spark anything in me. Whereas the things that I really want to do, I have like a very physical reaction to it's a bit like fancying somebody it's a bit like your heart beating faster and you think oh god please don't let this be taken please don't let somebody else be doing this i i i I want this so badly but what i would do if i were you dominique is 
try and present yourself with I mean maybe look at look at films or look at certain ideas or almost put them in front of you and see if you have a reaction to them which is not to say that you can't also work your way into caring because I've done that too but I don't have to anymore which is great so Gabby the last question that I wanted to ask you was if you could travel back to your younger self are there nuggets of advice that you would want to give to the young Gabby what would you say to her Oh, I don't know. Nothing. Not even don't do a, don't do a physics A level. Not even that because I think failing is a really useful thing to learn how to fail. And so I, I think all the things that bad and good that happened to me probably feed in. They're the compost from which this comes from. And I think if I told my younger self that I would write television that would actually be on television and films that would actually be in the cinema I wouldn't have believed it and I would have been so blown away by the idea um so I know I don't think there is anything I could say but maybe that's all you'd want to say is it's gonna be great yeah (laughs) no time machine for you Gabby that that's nice actually it's nice to hear it's sort of like it's as it should be um Gabby Chappie, thank you so much for making time to speak to us. Uh, It's just been an amazing insight into the world of screenwriting. And of course, uh, we also just want to thank the students from Screenology and um, Interfilm who've put all their questions to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Gabby. Thank Thank you. Right. Well, that was one of the first conversations we recorded. And yeah, the, the audio settings were a little bit ropey. I uh, Thank you for persevering. Uh, we've learned a lot since then. And it really takes nothing at all away from Gabby, who just goes from strength to strength, Holly. She really does. She's got a new Netflix series. Um, she's adapted the book and she's also writing original episodes for The Beast Must Die. Yeah, it looks really, really interesting. It's about a woman who infiltrates the the life of uh, her daughter's murderer. Um, and if you haven't seen Misbehaviour, I mean, honestly, one of my all-time favourites. Watch the films, but look, here's our ask. You get these awesome insider film conversations with women for free. You get all these amazing and meaningful film recommendations. Thank you, Holly. All we want for this unpaid effort um, is simply for you to hit like, and to share the podcast with others because it really helps us get a little bit more exposure. It tells us that you valued what we're doing, what we're putting hours and hours of our time into. And of course it helps the women that we're speaking to get more exposure. So it's all win-win. It really is. And next time we have a huge treat for you all. We're speaking to Ama Asante, who is one of the only, and I'm not even joking, black female directors working in Britain at the moment and she is so phenomenally talented that we had to wait two years to get an interview with her. <laughs> we we did but it's so worth it and and when she did give us her time she spoke for so long and so freely and it was so interesting that actually we've had to split it up into two fantastic packed episodes and in the first one we'll hear a lot about how she started out and what her early journey was. It is really really fascinating i felt like she really opened her heart and opened her life to us and she's packed with wisdom so that is going to be a fantastic episode please please do join us for that next time and thanks so much for listening 